Chapter 21, we are closely or coming very close to the end of this very important book. A book that I had all kinds of fears and trepidations about studying, which you can imagine. Knowing, knowing that everyone's going, is going to expect me to come up with all the answers to all the questions that he might have about the mysteries that lie here in this book, and knowing that I would have answers for some of those questions, but some of those questions there just really are no solid answers for, and we have to acquiesce in having things as they are. Uh, but we're beyond all those judgment scenes that we've been going through. We're, we're right to the point where Christ has come, the judgment has taken place, and his eternal kingdom of greatness and glory is established here in the world. Hallelujah for that. So chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any, uh, any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. All things new. I saw. How many times have we seen those words spoken here in the book of Revelation? Repeatedly. So we just a reminder to us that, uh, that what we're, we're reading here are recordings of the visions that Jesus Christ gave to John the Apostle. He's writing down what he sees. And what he sees now is a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth have passed away. We need to understand that this is, a, this is an event that affects not only the earth, but it affects the cosmos. All of creation, in a sense, is transformed. There's a newness about us. There's an oldness that has passed away. Notice here that God doesn't annihilate everything and then start over from scratch. He renews, he changes, he alters. 
I wonder if we would even be able to recognize the earth as it will be in those days compared to what it is now. This is one of those things where you and I, probably most of us have a pretty active imagination, and we live in a time when, when, when having an active imagination is really fostered, it's really encouraged in people, in particular in children maybe, with all the superheroes and this, that, and the other. They just, they just keep pulling superheroes out of their hat. There's just more, and it's like every day there's a new superhero that pops up. People's imaginations are being drawn and tested and stretched in ways that maybe they haven't been before. But let me tell you, as we study this book and we consider these things, it is beyond our wildest imagination, our ability to comprehend how great and how good and how wonderful the new heavens and the earth really will be. We can't come close to understanding of seeing what things will truly be like, of, ex- of what experiences we will have. And I know this much as, however, and that is this, is if we could just taste it just a little bit, we would give up anything and absolutely everything that we possibly could to attain it. We would forget about seeking after the things of this world that promise us peace and joy and comfort and things like that for the things that really do and really will. Strange that it says here there's no longer any sea. It's hard to imagine the earth without the sea, right? 78% of the earth's surface is covered with sea. We talked about the sea last week, how very often in the Bible you find that the sea was something that people feared and that people died, you know, at sea very often when ships wrecked and, uh, and that sort of thing. We have to ask the question, is this something that is being taken literally? In other words, is, is, is literally we're talking about an earth here that has no sea? Well, that's certainly a possibility. But we also know that this book is full of symbols and signs. Some of which we know and some of which we don't know. Some of those are identified as signs and symbols and we're told what they actually represent. But there are many things that uh, are obviously signs and symbols and we're not told what they actually represent. So... Could it be here that sea here is representing something that doesn't mean literally the sea? And I would say that it possibly could be. Because one of the things that you would find with the sea is this. is The sea is one of the things that separates. It separates. So just think about where John is. John is on this island in this penal colony at Patmos. And the sea is created, in essence, his prison. It has separated him from the people he loves in those seven churches in, uh, in Asia Minor and other people. The sea separates mankind in a great sense of the word. It always has. It has for a very long time. Could it be that one of the things that is being drawn out here is that it, there will no longer be this sort of separation between people? 
the people, all people in the world will be united. There will be nothing left in the world to separate the masses any longer. We will be one people under one God. Brothers and sisters, to the fullest extent, He has this vision. He sees again. So you hear verse 1, I saw. Verse 2, I saw. This vision of the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. A promise that God made back in the days of Isaiah. That he would create a new heavens and a new earth. Notice here that he doesn't take the old city of Jerusalem and renovate it. It's not a renewal project that takes place on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. That this new city, this new Jerusalem, ascends down from heaven. Described as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, if I were to ask you this question, who do you think is more concerned about the details of a wedding, the bride or the bridegroom on a typical wedding day? What would you say? The ladies just really seem to really, really be into the details of these wedding things. And we just see it over and over and again. You know, everything has to be just right. You know, this and that and, and all of that. The guys, on the other hand, we tend to be a lot more general when it comes to stuff. We just want to get the marriage done and, you know, and, uh, and all that kind of thing. And there really are differences, you know, in, in, you know, as far as the way men and women are put together, you know, and we don't approach everything exactly the same way. Uh, but the bride wants everything to be perfect. And very often the mother of the bride wants everything to be perfect. And never is it. Maybe on rare occasions it comes real close seems like there's always some monkey wrench that gets thrown into the picture somewhere. It comes down to what are you going to do with it? You know, go with the flow or are you going to make a big deal out of the imperfection? But just notice here this. That this is the perfect wedding between the perfect groom and, and the perfect bride that he has made There is, you know, as long as people are involved in it, there's always room for error. And when it comes to stuff like this, there almost always is error. But this is all by the power and by the might and the hand of God. And this is the perfect wedding. I heard, so John saw, and he saw, and now he hears. A loud voice from the throne. Now, whose voice is that? 
But we know ultimately it's God's voice. We also know there's a good chance it's the voice of Jesus. Right? Because Jesus today is sitting on that throne already. And all power and authority in heaven and earth have been given unto him already. And the voice is saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. The house of God is among men. Ultimately, what it means is this, is God is now literally living among men. How many times in the Old Testament do you see this phrase used? You will be my people, and I will be your God. You will be my people, and I will be your God. This is the fulfillment of that that prophecy that took place so many times in the Old Testament. You find it in Deuteronomy. You find it in, uh, in the book of Exodus. You find it in the prophets and places. That you will be my people. And I will be your God. Because God will dwell among us. Now is God among us now? Yes, his spirit is here. In kind of a subtle way. That we will dwell with one another for all of eternity. In the midst of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will be here. Have you ever wondered about what's called the. Theotific vision. Never hear that term before. Theologians use it sometimes. It's in reference to what will it be like the first time a believer sees Jesus after their death? How will you respond? Will you dance for Jesus? Will you be able to speak at all? That's the beatific vision. Have you ever wondered about that? What will it be like to see Jesus for the first time? Now you may be that strange individual that has absolutely perfect faith that never has any doubts about anything. I doubt anybody in this room fits in that category. That we all wonder at times. Sometimes our wondering goes too far. At that point, you will understand that it is all true. For the first time. No doubt at all. It's all gone. That Jesus is real. That Jesus is your Lord. That Jesus is your Savior. That Jesus is God. And that he loves you immensely. And he has done all that he has done for a lot of reasons. And you are one of those reasons. He's orchestrated all of this 
down through history for the purpose of saving you and bringing you to where your real home is. With him. And with every person who believes. Not for a short time. But for all of eternity. He will wipe away every tear. It's funny, you know, when it comes to emotions, sometimes we cry because we're happy. I'm not sure I've ever cried because I was happy, but some people do that. Women do that sometimes. They cry because they're just full of joy, and you'll wonder why they're crying. It's because I'm so happy, and they're crying. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But we know that for the most part, tears come from sadness from hurt, from harm. Can you imagine a place where there will never ever be another tear of mourning? Ever. There will be a place of gladness, of happiness, of joy, of fulfillment, of contentment. No more mourning or crying or pain at all. Does that sound like a place you'd like to be? Does it sound like a place you'd like to be right now? The first things that passed away. In other words, things as they were before are gone. And they're gone forever. Amen. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. All things, not just some things, but all things. New. The badness, the faultiness, the, the, the falling short of this, you know, this, that, and the other will all be gone. Everything will be as it's intended to be. Everything will be perfected to the utmost. No faults, no failures, no imperfections in anything, ever. And in particular, us. He said, right for these words are faithful and true. We haven't seen that, those words recently, but back in the very beginning of, of, of the book, we, in the apocalypse, we, we heard Jesus tell John to write these things down that he was about to show him. And because John did that, you and I have this book before us today. So this book has spoken to the generations of the church down for the last 2,000 years. The words that were given, written down by John to describe the things that Jesus showed him. We have them here today before us to take a look at and to study in depth. 
These words are faithful and true. In other words, Jesus is saying here that, why well, I told you so. I told you that it would be. And you wondered. And you doubted. And you questioned. Now you know. Everything I told you was true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It all comes down to him. He started it all. He finished it all. He carried it through. He did everything that was necessary to make it happen. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Very important words. Basically the same words that he shared with that Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Talking about the water that springs up to eternal life. Someone drinks that water, they will never thirst again. Remember that conversation. Have you tasted it? Do you thirst for more of it? Notice here it says without cost. There's no charge. Can't buy it. You can't purchase it. It is given. It is given freely. It costs you nothing. But it costs Jesus everything. There was a price to be paid because of our sins. And he paid it. Paid it in full. I read a book early on in my Christian faith that had a, had a big impact upon me. It was written by John MacArthur, a guy that I really do theologically agree with a lot of the time, but sometimes I don't at all. But he made a statement in that book that I have found through my Christian walk to be very true. 
And that statement is this. That salvation is a free gift. But in the end it will cost you everything. In other words, it means yielding, giving up everything else. Everything else. Think of the cost that these Christians that John is writing to initially, those seven churches in Asia Minor, we've spoke about them in detail early on in our study and we know that many of them were being severely persecuted and we know at least two of them Their life was taken, Antipas and Polycarp, they died because of the persecution that they were exposed to. We know that there was economic pressure on the Christians in those churches. They were not allowed to to trade sometimes, and they could not belong to some of the trading guilds. And in those days, if you weren't part of the guild, then you couldn't make any money. They were in great poverty, many of them. They were social outcasts. They were religious outcasts. But they gave all that up for Jesus. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There you see that promise, that Old Testament promise again. I will be his God, and he will be my son. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Overcome. He who overcomes. Overcomes what? What is it they were called to overcome? Unbelief. Now, I'd like to think that there are people in this room that have perfect faith, that have no doubts, that never wonder, that never ever sin. But I know that person doesn't exist. It certainly isn't me. That we're called over and over again in Scripture to persevere, to hang in there, to run the good race, to fight the good fight. Are you running? Are you fighting? Are you making a little bit of forward progress? Years ago, I was watching one of those Ironman contests, and it's always amazed me that people have the stamina to be able to compete in one of those things. Because it starts out with a swim that's like two and a half miles or something like that in the open ocean. Then they bicycle for like 120 miles, and then they run a marathon. So you're talking about someone that is 
exercising vigorously nonstop for 9 or 10 or 12 hours. You wonder how it is that anyone can actually do something like that. You would think it would pretty much just kill you on the spot. And I was watching the tail end of this race, and, and, and the last part of the marathon ended on the beach, and these, these runners were running down the beach. Now, if you've ever run on the beach, you know that sometimes running on the beach is not the easiest thing to do to start with. It's one thing if the sand is hard, but it's another thing if you're trying to run in loose sand after you've already done all these other things. But lo and behold, the last obstacle that they had to overcome was this, was the finish line wasn't on the beach. It was up on top of these massive sand dunes. And they had stairs going up the sand dunes. So you see these runners... Those who were in first place start going up the stairs, and the stairs proved to be the demise of some. And they collapsed on the stairs so close to the finish line. But at that point, completely, totally, physically unable to continue the race. Which worked to the advantage of the people behind them. Those two or three may have been the ones that were ahead of the, in the race the whole way up to this very last hundred yards. And now they've collapsed on the stairs. And what do you see the, 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 the runners coming behind them doing? They're stepping over them, stepping around them, and headed for the finish line. See, we're in a race, guys and gals, but our race is very different. We not only run for ourselves, we run for those around us. When our comrades fall, we reach down and pick them up and we carry them. When we fall, they reach down and they pick us up and they carry us. There are people in this world who believe, Christians, I, you know, on rare occasions, who believe they can get along in this world without having much association with other believers. Hogwash. We need the church. Everyone in this room needs the church. We need each other. We are stronger together. We are more capable together. We are able to accomplish more together. This will be our new home. We'll call or called. To endeavor all the way to the end. Not for a time and stop. best way of saying this maybe is that we should be about our father's business always not just for a time 
but until the time Jesus comes back. I told you there wasn't any judgment left. There is a little bit here in verse 8. talks about what happens to the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and all that. We've already studied this. They've been already cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where Satan and the first beast and the second beast have also been cast. And death itself has been cast. Do you look upon life as a race, as a fight? There is that aspect. Not everything. It should be part of the picture that every one of us has of our life. There's a sense in which we are in the fight of our lifetime. And it will not end. Until the end. Thanks for being here, guys and gals. I need you. I need you to help me. To help me run the race. To help me run this fight. And I hope you need me too. We're stronger, much stronger when we do it together.